You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Hello and welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show. My name is Errol Parker and on today's show we are having a very special guest, but we didn't have him in the studio because he was in Sydney. Clancy recorded this in the ensuite of his bathroom, which is why he sounds like he recorded his end of the interview in a fucking bathroom. So for that, he apologizes. And... Thanks to this man's government, they completely fucked the NBN and we were dropping in and out. So if it sounds a bit tinny, sounds a bit funny, I'm sorry, but this interview covers a lot of important ground and it's well worth a listen. So let's take it away. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, recording live out of the Queensland Channel Country, downtown Batuta, Budgie Smuggler Studios. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate, and of course, Errol Park, editor at large. How are you, Errol? Always good, mate. Always good. Today we have another guest coming in through the Skymaster. He is a, a household name in politics, and there's not many of them. Mm. And today's guest is the fixer, Christopher Pine, coming straight out of the hilltops of Adelaide. How are you, sir? Clancy, thank you very much for having me on the show. And Errol, it's nice to see you too. Which part of Queensland are you in, Errol, if you're in East Queensland? Nice to see you again. Me, I am in... The Sanctuary Cove area of the Gold Coast at the moment. Oh, with um, Clive so Palmer. So you've um, just dragged me off the pines, actually. Oh, lovely Royal Pines. Royal Pines. You know that part of the world, um, Christopher. I think that was the um, part of the world that Peter Dutton tried to relocate his seat to when he thought he was going to lose Dixon. That's true. He did actually. He did. He wanted to move down to Moncrief. Yep. No, McPherson. McPherson. <laughs> he was beaten by Karen Andrews. Mm. It's a wild game. No one gets anything over Karen Andrews, do they? No, they don't. I've it's played tough. at Royal Pines a long, long time ago. And, of course, I um, have been to the Gold Coast and had lunch with uh, Clive Palmer at his home on the island. Yes, right. He spends a lot of time there. Um, were you sent um, as a, a chief de-escalator with Clive or were you kind of doing a bit of preference to spring up there? No, I was um, a de-escalator, as you call it. So I was... Uh, right. My job was to try and get the university reforms through the Senate. Clive believed in the reforms, but he, uh, the lure of students voting for him and handing out his how-to-vote cards was too great, and he, uh, the Palmer United didn't end up supporting it. But I had a very nice lunch with Clive up in his island on the Gold Coast, saw his boat which wasn't moving anywhere. I don't know if he still has that or whether that's been repossessed. Although he's doing very well now, so he'd probably, he'd probably be quite happy. Yeah, it's amazing what, uh, you know, $50 million worth of billboards can do for you. And you're only as wealthy as your health, as they say. Who says that? Lots of doctors and scientists and Kerry Packer too. That was, that was something he said a lot. Got all the money in the world, but it can't get me another kidney, can it? So. No, but he tried to get one from his helicopter pilot. Just goes pilot. to show. I think he no, did. No, he did get one. <laughs> he did get one from his helicopter pilot. I, right. I don't think he could get the other one. <laughs> he could have tried, but it <laughs> would have depended, I suppose. No. But he also said that when he died on the polo field, there was nothing there. Yeah, I believe him too. Oh, yeah, he died twice, didn't he? So just on that, um, in terms of places where there's nothing... Could you take us back to the start? I mean, I know you said on your last speech in Parliament you didn't have a log cabin story that a lot of other people in that chamber have. 
or quite what was old. Adelaide like in the 70s and early 80s when you were a young man walking the streets of the Torrens Republic? Well, I finished year 12 in 1984. So my yep. era in terms of you know music and theatre was the 1980s. And uh, so it was sort of funny hair and but not like um, mm. afros. It was kind of a bit more modern. Yep. It was a bit mm-hmm. more Duran Duran, which will be very familiar to your listeners. Absolutely. And um, mm-hmm. it was great. Adelaide was a great place. It was a very busy place and still is. And it's a great place to grow up, especially as a young person. It's always lots of fun. We'd just come out of the Dunstan era, which ended badly, if you might remember. And uh, in the mm-hmm. 80s, we had a, a short-lived Liberal government and then a long Labor government. So I was very active in student politics and uh, the Liberal Party and the Liberal Club and generally sort of layering about, as all young people should. Can you tell us a little bit about youth politics? I mean, we'll continue with the story um, of the insider shortly, but tell us a little bit about youth politics, because I can't imagine in the you know the, the dying days of the Turnbull government, you would have been a big fan of some of those kind of uh, loudmouth North Shore uh, young liberals who were um, quite factional. And um, you know, I, I even recall them laughing at Turnbull on stage when he said there is no factions in the Liberal Party. Do you feel uh, the modern pathway for a politician is creating a bit too much confidence in these youngsters? <laughs> Look, I think the young people in the in the party, whether they're conservatives or moderates or smaller liberals or whatever they describe them as, and they're all sort of learning their craft and sometimes they can spill over a bit and uh, get themselves into a bit of a mess. The South Australian liberals, young liberals, are not nearly as uh, overconfident as some of the New South Wales young liberals have been in the past. I mean, they would never laugh Mm. at a Prime Minister on the stage. But then in South Australia, we're just a little bit more sophisticated about things like that. So I guess that's the difference. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But the New South Wales young liberals were never rude to me, I have to tell you. So I've only had a good experience with um, the Liberal Party in New South Wales. Have you ever met a young Liberal around the age of 25 who you thought was qualified to sit in Parliament? What qualifies someone who's 25 to be in the House of Representatives? Look, it's a good question. I was asked many years ago about what was my one regret about politics. I said it was going in when I was 25 (laughs) because looking back, I realised that I thought I knew a great deal. I learned a lot over the next 10 years and I think John Howard decided that it was quite crazy, the idea of putting a 25-year-old close to the front bench. So I was in the outer reaches of the uh, party room for a long time. But then, you know, 10 years later, I got my break and the rest was history, as they say. But it was, uh, it was far too young to go into politics. If I had my time again, I would have waited. But I didn't really want to go into politics when I was 25. The problem was that my, pre- my predecessor, Ian Wilson... Yeah. Ian Benith and Cameron Wilson, he was challenged by another fellow and I thought if if Jim Durden wins, then I'm going to be stuck for 20 years not being able to go into Sturt. So I had to throw my hat into the ring, and as you do in Queensland, and uh, I won. I was unstoppable. So your predecessor, you were unstoppable, your, your predecessor actually held that seat for longer than you had been alive at that point. Is that is that correct? Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. Ian had been in the parliament for 24 years when I challenged him at 24. That's true. And I 
surprised him. So I had the element of surprise. Is it fair to say that was a fairly safe seat? Sturt's been sometimes safe and sometimes marginal. It's uh, uh, My margin was as low as 0.9 and as high as about 10.5 over the course of nine elections. So it's a good seat, though. It's only been in Labor's hands for about four years since 1949. Otherwise, it's always been held by the Liberal Party. So you'd have to say it's a good seat to get. We mentioned before something jumping around like that. You know, kind of, does that erode the actual system a little bit? Because, you know, it, it, it had to have been disheartening for the people of Dixon and the Gold Coast for Peter Dutton to decide he wanted to base himself out of the beach house. <laughs> well, I think Peter would have a very different take on um, his interest in McPherson. But it's not unusual because uh, Michael Wooldridge, he transferred from a seat called Chisholm to uh, Casey when he was the Minister for Health. I could see why Peter Dutton would think that it was uh, worthwhile being in a very safe seat like McPherson. But it's got to be said, he's done a magnificent job at winning and beating Cheryl Kernow back in the day and now holding that seat. He's turned it into a Dutton stronghold. A mortgage belt. So can we just go back to your early days in Parliament just for a second? I've got here that you said something quite questionable to John Howard at that time, which kind of led you to being frozen out a little bit. Do you go over that in the book? Well, no, because I dealt with that in the first book, A Letter to My Children, published by Melbourne University Press, which is still available for sale, and I'm expecting (laughs) an increase in sales because of this current book. So I actually went through that in the first book, and I thought it would be not very imaginative to do it again in the second book. So I have alluded to it in The Insider, but I haven't uh, gone through the entire detail. I suppose that now you don't have a career to maintain in Parliament House, so I, I thought now you might uh, be a bit more liberal with it. Well, look, I'm quite honest about it. You know, after the two, the 1993 election, uh, Howard ran for um, leader against John Hewson, and he came to see me and sat on my couch in the Parliament House office and said um, that he would, you know, seeking my support to support him for leader. And I said to him that he was yesterday's man and we were never going to go back to him, which proved catastrophically (laughs) wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And, of course, he became leader uh, a couple of years later and uh, stayed there for 11 and a half years. But out of the goodness of his heart, he did let me have a nice long apprenticeship on the back bench and then appointed me as a parliamentary secretary in 2003 and then um, I was on the front bench for the next 16 years. So I think he thought that was rather brash or audacious of me to say that and of course it was. But it's the kind of foolish thing that 25-year-olds who are now find themselves in the House of Representatives say because they don't have that filter that everybody needs. The young people don't have that filter that we get with age like you two. Yep, comes with age. Um, So... Can you tell us, over the weekend we saw, you know, the first real test of Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese's leaderships. Do you think there's anything to take out of what happened in Eden Monero over the weekend? Well, Errol, I think it was a good result for the Liberal Party, simply because there was a swing to the government of about half a percent in a Mm by-election, when the average swing in a by-election is about 3.8% to the opposition. So... Labor went backwards, uh, and that's very unusual. If the government had won it, 
it would have been a one in a hundred year event because the, the last yeah. time a government won a by election from the opposition was 1920. So it didn't surprise me at all that Labor held Eden Monero, and I think it was actually a poor result for Labor because they you know, had a swing against them. Yeah. But it's a very difficult seat to predict because who knew how people who'd been traumatised quite correctly by the bushfires in January, how they would react and how, what that would, how that would affect their voting pattern. So it was very hard to predict, and I'm not sure whether they would have been happy or unhappy with the government. But Labor won it, but I don't think that they should be taking too much positive out of it. Yeah. I still think Jim Chalmers is no. going to keep uh, circling around Anthony yeah. Albanese. Uh, I reckon Albo will get one go at it, at least. Do you think that, um, especially in the past you know, 15 years, we've seen you know, quite a big rise in the minor parties? How big of a role do you see them playing moving forward? You know, now that, in, especially in regional areas in New South Wales, you've got big competition coming from the shooters, farmers and fishers. And as we saw in Eden Monero, there was a big vote to the hemp party. Right. Um, <laughs> could you see us kind of moving forward in a parliament that's more diverse in terms of, you know, how a government forms government? No, I don't. And I, I, we've heard this argument for many decades about how the rise of the independence and it just doesn't really exist I mean, in the House of Representatives, there's 151 seats. I think five are held by independents. Yeah. So that's not very many. Um, and one of those is Bob Catter, who came from the National Party. Of course, Adam Bant's a Green, so he's a genuine independent. Most people <laughs> who end up in the crossbenches um, are from a major party. So they yep. can't really say that they've been elected as independents. They've been elected usually as nationals and sometimes as Labor, sometimes as Liberals, and then they defect or leave. I don't see... I mean, the, the, mo the only new party that's had any great electoral success in the last 20 years has been One Nation, who had continued success, and Pauline Hanson is a particular brand. Without Pauline Hanson, I don't think One Nation would have any success. Or without the Today Show. <laughs> yes, indeed, but... Uh, She's obviously good for ratings. And um, the Nick Xenophon uh, phenomenon you know, has ended with Nick Xenophon. So I don't think that there's going to yeah. be a tremendous number of independents. And the reason for that, Errol, is the preferential voting system. It mitigates against... The rules have been changed now, haven't they? Well, the preferential voting system's been in, in the way we've elected people for many, many, many decades. But it's, uh, yep. it's just that you have to make a choice. And if you don't get enough votes, you don't stay in the race. So it's... Um, you know, I think there's a group of people that like voting for independence, and I think they're mostly shocked that the rest of the world doesn't think mm -hmm. like them. But actually, the vast majority of people vote Liberal or Labor or Nationals. Yeah. Do you think that independents have a purpose in Parliament? Like, I thought it was good that we had someone like Ricky Muir in the Senate, for example. Do you think that he represents an important aspect of Australian society? Yeah, of course he does. But Ricky Muir represents a certain view of Australia, uh, but the Australian Parliament's very diverse. Yeah. I mean, we have in the coalition people as diverse as Warren Inch, who used to be a crocodile farmer, right through to, you know, Malcolm Turnbull from Wentworth. It's not like the, the major parties are white-bred politicians who are all exactly the same. And 
And I quite like Ricky Muir, but I, I don't think he should have got elected with about, you know, 200 votes or whatever it was. Um, yeah. And I think the problem with shooters and fishers or independents who are on the conservative side of politics or the non-Labor side of politics, like Clive Palmer, is you've got to remember, I think, if you're that group, who your base is. And what happens to a lot of them is they get elected and conservative voters vote for them and then they end up voting for the Labor Party or supporting the Labor Party or trying to do deals from the crossbenches and voting with the opposition or the Labor government against their own mm. people who elected them. So that's why a lot of them fail, because the voter looks at them and says, well, you're not really being true to us who elected you. I think the reason yeah. why Pauline Hanson's group has continued is because Pauline's actually, for all of her faults, quite consistent about what she believes mm -hmm. in, and she votes that way. So what you're saying is your, your concern with independence is they serve as a gateway to stop voting for the Liberal Party? Well, my concern is that they get elected and then they behave up the opposite way to the uh, to what, yeah. they, what their platform was. Now, take the shooters and fishers are a very good example. There's no doubt that coalition governments are going to be better for shooters and fishers because we believe in the individual having more rights, more say in how they live their lives, and it's the Labor and Greens and the woke people that are bad for the shooters and fishers, and yet the shooters and fishers preferenced Labor in the Eden Monero by-election. So that's not based mm -hmm. on principle. That's just based on what they think's in their short-term political interests, and that's where I think they start to fall back, fall apart. Yeah, I mean, like, you can only kind of look as far as what happened to Tony Windsor. Exactly. Well, Tony Windsor's a classic example. Yeah. In fact, of course, I was there in 2010 when Tony Windsor and... Um, Robert Oakeshott, you know, put a Labor government into power. And in my book, The Insider, I point yeah. out that I think Labor's vote was 8% in Tony Windsor's electorate and about sort of 11% in Robert Oakeshott's electorate. And quite rightly, the voters in those two seats were aghast that their member was putting in a Labor government. And it was, that's a classic. Yeah. Neither of them ran again. As I say in the book, they um, didn't face the the jury of the public at the next elections. When you, when you start looking at the, um, you know, the consistency of, of the major parties, you always start having to also look at the inconsistencies. Um, you speak about short-term goals. You know, all it takes is for a uh, drunk old national or you know, LNP MP to kind of you know, play up a little bit or develop a rampant alcohol addiction and then the entire government is kind of beholden to their midlife crisis. Did, did you find that a bit, you know, troubling when you, you Craig Kelly's and the Barnaby Joyce's who were completely unhinged, certainly during the time of the spill, you know, Barnaby, at the time of when Barnaby lost his seat to the high court, he had a few other secrets that were ready to blow. And I guess all these people were instrumental in the downfall of your Messiah or um, I guess your chosen prime minister at the time. Um, yes, well, I do remember when, um, and I, I recount in the book, that Malcolm asked me to come and see him one day and uh, he said he'd just had the most extraordinary news from Barnaby Joyce. And I said, and I thought, oh God, you know, because there's been rumours swirling around the house about Barnaby and as it turned out, they, t they, they were true, which he's admitted to, of course, so that's not telling any secrets out of school. And he said, and I alluded to that story and he said, no, it's worse, he's a New Zealander. That's when we found out that he lost his citizenship. <laughs> but there's always, um, 
Look, there's always people in the parliament without you know putting Barnaby Joyce in that league uh, or anybody else for that matter that you named who can be a bit um, <laughs> unpredictable, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. And uh, when you've only got a one-seat majority or, or less, uh, as Labor did, you know, one member can cause a tremendous trouble. So when in 2010-13 we had Craig Thompson caused a bit of problems for the Labor Party and Peter mm. Slipper, um, he, caused, he um, took the speakership from Harry Jenkins and denied us a vote on the floor of the House. So... You know, it's uh, it makes politics very exciting, though, Clancy. That's the thing. And when you're the leader of the house or the manager of opposition business, it's very exciting. In your life after politics, what are you looking forward to? We always hear the cliches, you know, I'm quitting to spend more time with my family. I didn't say that when I left. No, but... um. Because I think that that's a bit trite. Like, you know, if... Yeah. I was in Parma for 26 years and I'm married with four children, age 12 to 20, if I had wanted to spend more time with my family as the reason for leaving, uh, it took me a long time to work that out, <laughs> right? So <laughs> all of my children were born after I was elected and uh, it's absolutely fantastic being home and being able to spend more time with them. But I think that's a bit of a tired old cliche, I'm retiring to spend more time with my family, because if you really felt that way, yeah. why did you go into politics in the first place? Obviously, if you go into Canberra politics, you're going to be away half the year. So it's, it's, it's a real sacrifice, and it's a sacrifice that they make. So you've got to really take, you've got to be upfront and honest about that. Now, I left very simply because I thought 26 years was a good run, and I thought it'd be nice to leave of my own choice as opposed to some terrible scandal. And uh, most politicians never get to leave of their own volition. They get dragged kicking and screaming from politics. And uh, I thought at 51, if I'm going to do something else, I really need to get on and do it now. Because if I wait till I'm sort of 60 or something, then uh, I won't be able to go. And it'll look a bit unimaginative to have been in politics for 40 years. So... That's why I yep. left, and I'm loving I'm loving post political life. I love being on boards and doing work and having clients and taking an interest in the things around me in a way that I never had time to do before. I mean, I'm watching MasterChef, for example, and I didn't realise there'd been fourteen other series. So I'm completely gripped really? by MasterChef because uh, to me it's all new, and I laugh at ads on the television that have been on for years. And Karen and the children say, what's so funny? And I said, this ad's really funny. And they said, this ad's been on for years, Dad. Because I've, um, of course, missed all that. So there's lots of fun things about not being in politics. We've seen in your post-political life, you've moved into defence again, and we've just seen a re-announcement of an old policy to spend about $270 billion on defence. The money's being spent on defence, though, isn't it? In ter- like, as opposed to offence. <laughs> what are some of the shortcomings that this cash is going to go and help, you know, because we have seen that a country that cannot be named has been maybe launching some cyber attacks against us. Do you think moving forward, you know, that's really going to be the new area that we need to focus on in terms of our defence spending? Uh, well, the government's committed $15 billion for cyber security in last week's uh, defence update and force structure plan. And it was, I think, a very good document, or two documents. You need to keep refreshing um, your thinking around defence all the time. And what I thought was most interesting out of that statement, Errol, was the 
recognition that our strategic situation had changed, that in 2016 mm. we had a particular view of the Pacific nature of the Indo-Pacific, and uh, today, in 2020, it's much less peaceful, it's much less stable, and there are tensions today that were nascent in 2016 that have now become very raw. The rivalry between yep. the US and China being the most obvious one. That manifests itself in uh, China's claims about the South China Sea, but also territorial disputes with countries like India and now Bhutan. Uh, you'd think that they'd leave the Bhutanis with the land that they've got, but they say that 12% <laughs> of it's actually Chinese. The announcement they made last week has a number of new pieces of platforms and equipment, but recommits us to that very large spending that we started in 2016, which was 200 billion over 10, and this is 270 over 10, which is the continuation of that policy. And I think it's very welcome. Cyber and space, uh, space situational awareness, all of these capabilities, it's great to see us investing in them. But what's really great yeah. is that they're investing in the Australian industry capabilities in those areas, which means that the uh, huge defence heft, that spend, will also uh, benefit the economy, jobs, uh, science, technology, engineering and maths jobs and manufacturing industry, which is one of the things that I tried to do when I was the minister for three years. Yep. Just quickly on another area of defence and offence, one grab that really jumped out of Malcolm Turnbull's book was about Kevin Rudd and his ambitions to be the Prime Minister of the World at the United Nations. He said to Malcolm, he said, you little rat piece of shit, you piece of shit, I'm going to get you, I'm going to come down to Australia and campaign against you in every part of the country. Is there a grab from your book that's equally as predictable but also inherently shocking? <laughs> well, you'll have to buy The Insider, Errol, and then you'll be able to read it. Um, oh, I, I have it open in front of me. Oh, good. Well, I, I'm glad. Well, I haven't uh, <laughs> revealed any private conversations about matters such as those between Malcolm and Kevin. Kevin mm -hmm. Malcolm's is a different book. Uh, mine is a memoir that tries to explain to the Australian public how politics in Canberra works, particularly in those 12 years between 2007 and 2019, which were particularly crazy years and very tumultuous. Um, so I haven't got a colourful sentence or or conversation yeah. like that that leaps out of the page. I don't think Kevin campaigning against Malcolm Turnbull would have made a tremendous difference, actually. No, probably not against you either, but um, your book has obviously got much more of, you know, there's, there's an air of South Australian decorum in your book. <laughs> and in terms of Malcolm's, you know, it was very private schoolgirl, you know, he said, she said this. <laughs> Is that how things usually played out in the party room? You know, were you always the stoic, polite, Alexander Downer type? Or, you know, were you the brash John Howard type, I guess? Well, I know that you've included me in your book as one of the good things about Adelaide and my particular Adelaide accent. So I know where you're going with these questions. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm completely on top yeah. of them. Um, you sound like everyone in... In a minka does, you know, just <laughs> they're very rounded vowels. <laughs> they love their rounded vowels in Queensland. Uh, in in well, a minka. In, in a minka, indeed. 
<laughs> well, you see, I say Adelaide properly as well, which yeah. people struggle with. How about Udna Data. Udna Data. Yeah. <laughs> Udna Data is one of our lovely towns nice. in the north. Yep. It is lovely. Yes. Mm. I've been up there. I don't think I've been to Udnadatta. I have been to the Ananu Pitjatjatjara Yankanajara lands, so which is hard to say. APY lands. All right, got to got to give you um, got to give you credit for nailing that one. Thank you. Uh, look, um, I think there's no doubt that the convict states are quite different to the free settler states. Um, yeah. Of which there happens to only be one. Now that I think about it, free settler state. Um, so we do have uh, our own um, eccentricities here in in Adelaide. One of them, like you know, giving women the vote in 1894 and allowing them to stand for parliament. I mean, you, you certainly wouldn't give that mm -hmm. back. Um, we were very much nope. at the front, the forefront of a lot of social change in South Australia, which yep. we're very proud of. We got rid of the death yep. penalty before everybody else did too. Nope, you just cram them into barrels <laughs> in South Australia. <laughs> I think that's, I don't think that's um, a routine action on the part of South Australians. No, probably not. <laughs> oh. Good stuff. Good okay. stuff. This is great for Monday evening. Now, uh, Mr. Pye, can you tell us a little bit about your heritage? Because, you know, we, we mentioned the, the free set of thing here, and, and obviously it is clear that the, the, the Irish... Uh, convict, the Irish Catholic, and the convict Australian tend to l really grasp onto this sense of, um, you know, particularly white male victimhood. But there's, uh, as you said, it's a bit different down there in, in, in the free state. What, what do you think that is? I mean, aside from the ancestry, what was kind of bred into you? I'm sure it appears in the book Insider available now. What was kind of, uh, where did your kind of moral compass come from? Was it the church? I think you'll find, Clancy, that the reason why Adelaide's called the city of churches is not because we were particularly religious. It's because there were lots and lots of different religions and they all had their own church, like the Quakers and the Catholics and the Anglicans and everybody else. Um, they all had lots of sects. As a consequence, because we were a free state, there was no state religion. A lot of Germans and others moved to South Australia because it was free and uh, they couldn't be told what to do. And they might have even been persecuted in their own countries. And that's made South Australians very tolerant of difference and diversity. So I think it's fair to say that the average conservative in South Australia is not nearly as conservative as the average conservative in Queensland and New South Wales, for example. But that doesn't mean they don't vote yeah, that's liberal. A, that's a fair observation. I think it's a fair observation. Apart from Bernardi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't make it into the book, I'm afraid, so I, he won't be in <laughs> He's not in the insider. Is it, can you walk away from your career being comfortable to say who you did not get along with and who made life hard for you in your own team? No. Well, I don't, not in this book, I don't push anybody under the bus because I just don't see anything yeah. good about that. You know, I don't, Yeah. that's not been my milieu. I think I played the game as hard as anybody in Canberra, um, as you have to if you want to survive, but I didn't uh, personalise anything. I think that's probably why I survived, actually, because I separated the personal from the political, which is why I'm friends with people like Anthony Albanese and Richard Miles and Tanya Plibersek, despite the fact that they obviously don't want them to get elected. So <laughs> I don't really take anybody apart in this book unpleasantly. I don't see much point in doing that. 
Uh, well, there were people, the only illusion in the book about that is really to the people who tried to keep me from getting promoted for a long time, like Alexander Downer, Nick Minchin and John Howard, who uh, obviously didn't give me a bit of a, a big start. But the book, as Amanda Vanstone says in the foreword of The Insider, the book and my career uh, answers those people who said that I you know, wasn't going to amount to anything because that didn't happen. You make an interesting point, you know, in that speech that Errol mentioned earlier where you said, you know, it, you didn't have the long cabin uh, upbringing and you also didn't go and try and mythologise your upbringing like a lot of politicians do, you know, whether or not they'd be talking about, you know, working class uh, Bronte or they'd be talking about the weatherboard nine of uh, you know, New England. Yeah, the weatherboard boarding school. Yeah, the weatherboard nine of Riverview. You are pretty honest about all that and you still managed to, uh, in the eyes of your own electorate, we would have to say after such a long career, you were able to read the electorate correctly. Where do you think, you know, in this detachment from the, you know, from the electorate to the political class and vice versa, where do you think that's being bred? I mean, it's, it's obviously very clearly happening around the world, but it is happening uh, in, in Australia as well. Do you think that's coming from the media or do you think there is a political class developing that might not be able to tell you what, the, uh, what, what a kilo of chops cost in Parramatta, you know, supermarket? I don't think the political class has changed very much in the last many hundreds of years, quite frankly. I think there are people who are drawn to public service and public life and uh, they come from all different walks of life. And what I conveyed, I think, by saying I'd once had to get my own lemon for a gin and tonic, which was probably didn't qualify as a log cabin story, <laughs> was that uh, I didn't try and pretend to be um, pull myself up from the bootstraps. Um, mine was a quite privileged upbringing and the reason I went into politics was because I thought I had a responsibility to give to the society so much that they'd given to us. I mean, there's a saying in the Psalms, to those who much is given, much is expected. And it means if you've been lucky, your job is to give back. It isn't to keep taking. So I thought I was always basically said that. But I do remember once, you see, you're quite right, of course, I wasn't exactly an everyman candidate in Sturt. And uh, I remember once Mark Texter said to me that we've done some polling in your electorate <laughs> in 2007, and I have to tell you that the people in the north of your electorate don't like you. <laughs> I said, OK. <laughs> he said, they don't want to have a beer with you. I said, that's disappointing. He said, but they think you're really effective, and if they wanted to hire a lawyer, they'd hire you. And I said, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, you don't... Uh, a friend hires their lawyer who's a friend, they're bound to failure, for failure. But if you hire the person you think is going to get the job done, then the lawyer's done their job. So I'd rather, I always thought I'd rather be um, seen as effective and capable and able to get things done and uh, take out an opponent if necessary than um, somebody who was hail fellow well met and everybody liked. That said, as you pointed out, I've departed politics with not that many enemies. You just mentioned then, as in they would they would hire you as a lawyer and maybe now they have that opportunity. What have you been doing? You haven't taken any jobs with Gina, um, which seems to be... <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, seems to be, no. you know, a well-worn path for ex-politicians or China even. What, what are you doing? You're not working for the Port of Darwin or anything like that? <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I've started a <coughs> consulting business, uh, Pine and Partners. I'm the... President or Chairman of the Australia UAE Business Council. I've got about half a dozen different advisory boards. 
I've got my column in the advertiser, I've written my book, my podcasts, uh, Pine Time, which have gone very well with Southern Cross Off yeah. Stereo. I'm on the board of a couple of not-for-profits because um, I think you want to keep putting back into the community called the International Centre for Democratic Partnerships, which promotes civil society in the South Pacific and the Australia-Israel Cultural Exchange, which, which promotes good relations between Israel and Australia. So I'm very busy and it's good fun. What do you do in your spare time? Do you play golf? Is that your thing or are you more of an Adelaide fringe guy? I like fringe, but I also uh, play golf, but I don't play golf like regularly, but I can play. And, uh, well, I guess I tend to read books and garden and I still work. I still like working. Mm -hmm. and I like, you know, seeing my friends now that I can again because I've got time. Christopher Pine, one last question. There's going to be many political memoirs that come out this year. Why should people buy yours? Because you'll learn something you didn't know before about politics, about some of the stories that have never been printed that are in the book for the first time that I've hung on to for years. And uh, so it's an eye-opening book. It's a, it's a book that has a good pace to it. And uh, you'll learn a bit about the solar system of politics and what makes us tick. Christopher Pine, thank you for your time. Pleasure. It's great thank you. Personally, I look forward to reading The Insider. Available now at all good bookstores. Thank you for joining us. Yep. Even the bad ones have it. No, the bad ones definitely have it. And the, <laughs> the good ones too. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yep. Thanks, Clancy. No thank worries. you, Errol. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks very much. See you later. Good luck. Thank you. See ya.